Hello again out in podcast land and welcome to Gen X Cinema Geeks. I am Geek Chris, joined by my far more nuanced movie critic brother Rich. Say hello to the people. Hello to the people. Hey, speaking of the people, and thank you people for listening. There's there's multiples of you now, which is very exciting. And I saw on our stats that we have reached some global audience. So we would like to say bonjour to our listener in France. And I'm going to say hello to our listener in Australia because a good eye would just be cheesy and stupid. Good eye. So that's, uh, we're glad to have you. We're glad to have everyone joining us here in the good old US of A or wherever you are around the world. Thank you very much. Today on our, what is this, fifth episode? Fifth episode. Fifth episode. We are fixing to tackle the cracking, banging, rip snorting year that was 1994. Uh, lots and lots of really good fodder for today's episode. Um, do you have anything you'd like to say about 94 before we get started? Why, yes. Yes, I do. I want to give a special shout out to our number one fan, a former uh, cast member of Disneyland, Miss Cat Lane. Thank you for listening and all your support since minute one. We appreciate it. I have a feeling uh, MJ might be a little disappointed to not be called number one fan. We might have like a misery chesting type of like um, ankle breaking off going on here. So let's say it's a tie. It's a tie. Between Cat and Marty. Cat and Marty. Thank you. Thank you for listening and all your support. And uh, we don't have a lot of pontificating to do this time, like last time. We went a little long yeah. <laughs> uh, last time. And, you know, we don't we don't even like ourselves enough to listen to ourselves that long. So uh, today we're just going to jump right in and start talking about our movies. Our top 10 of 1994. That is correct. A rip-snorting year. Rip-snorting indeed. I'm curious as to whether or not we will see the presence of Juliette Binoche and Denzel Washington. Um, but... Yeah, I know. I'm thinking through my list right now. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. But at least we got the obligatory name drop. Will there be Steven Spielberg? Will there be Denzel Washington? It is anyone's guess. Will there be trends? We'll have to tell you as we go. And for now, I believe it's my turn to go first, since you went first last time and everything is fair on Gen X Cinema Geeks. And that means it is my turn to go first. I actually didn't. I haven't even told you what my number 10 is yet. Typically, we share lists beforehand, folks. Um, Ooh, mostly, <laughs> mostly because if we have the same movies, we want to make sure that you know we give each other equal time to talk about stuff. Um, so uh, this is a kind of surprise to him, and I don't even think he knows what my top four looks like because I have been dragging on doing this year. But here we are, and we're ready for my number ten. It is a big surprise to him. It was directed by Neil Jordan, written by Anne Rice, starring Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, a very young and phenomenal Kirsten Dunst. Antonio Banderas and Christian Slater. It is surprisingly Interview with the Vampire. I can tell by your face you're surprised. I am surprised. And I do agree on the Kirsten Dunst part. <laughs> she came to the screen fully formed <laughs> as a star. Exactly. Um, Interview with the Vampire. So I think he's surprised because this isn't a typical movie for me. It is um, the story of a 200-year-old vampire named Louis who recounts the story of his life in the darkness uh, to a reporter, he was transformed by the vampire Lestat, played by Tom Cruise, um, after the death of his wife and young child. And uh, when he was ready to face death um, on his own, Lestat gave him a different kind of life, much to his eternal regret. 
Uh, Louis is a vampire with a conscience. He is unwilling to kill humans. He, um, when they change the child, Claudia, played brilliantly by Kirsten Dunst. Uh, she's a 12-year-old who becomes like a 42-year-old, but um, still trapped in the body of a 12-year-old. She becomes like his child, um, and he develops an unexpected love for her and kind of a fatherly type role. Um, and he's he's really, you know, he, the thing I liked about this movie, first of all, the production design is phenomenal. It is, it is, it is gorgeously made. The costumes are beautiful. Um, the scenes in Europe and the catacombs are just cool as heck. Um, that whole scene in the tunnel there with the little magical vampire. Yeah. <laughs> um, just, it, it's got a lot of really, really beautiful visuals to it. Um, not to mention Brad Pitt's long flowing hair, <laughs> which he, which seemed to be a star of a lot of movies in 94 because you also saw it in Legends of the Fall. Um, but I, I love that, you know, these were vampires with a conscience before the Cullens. And, be and better than the Cullens, right? This is a vampire who, who only uh, wanted to drink off animal blood before we had to endure sparkliness. And to be honest, I'm pretty sure that Claudia would rip Bella's throat out. <laughs> so we have bloodthirsty, blood-sucking vampires. We're not afraid to go horror here, but we also have it balanced out, the morality of the situation, in an un immoral being by Louis and his unwillingness to um, to kill people and to descend as far into enjoying the darkness as Lestat does. I like the little twist at the end there. Um, yeah. Just when you thought that there was a narrow escape. Oh no. Oh no, my friend. Uh, things get very interesting. And for the, for the love of Pete, can he actually go away? So it's, um, I loved the relationships. I loved how Lestat, even though he was basically a Cretan, like he did not want to lose Louis. Uh, he created Claudia to keep Louis close to him. Um, he basically was trying to create his own little vampire family, but he he wasn't familial, if that makes sense. Whereas Louis was actually really a vampire with a conscience and um, was able to form relationships and um, even a good one with Armand, uh, played by Antonio Banderas. It's um it's a horror movie, which is why it's a little bit uh, unusual for me. But um, number ten, um, I think it earned a spot. Yeah, I always liked how the. Uh... There was like stomach churning violence against these beautiful backdrops. <laughs> kind of a weird. And by beautiful people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my number 10 is a cracking debut by the brilliant director, Danny Boyle, written by John Hodge, who they would later go on to collaborate on train spotting. I got Shallow Grave starring Obi-Wan Kenobi and the Ninth Doctor. I'm kidding. That's Ewan McGregor and Christopher Eccleston to you mere mortals. It also has Carrie Fox, who made her big splash in Jane Campion's An Angel at My Table. Uh, it's about three kind of trendy, shallow roommates who get a fourth roommate who promptly turns up dead with a suitcase full of cash. And then it's followed by moral quandaries and backstabbing and paranoia. And I, I don't want to get into the plot too much because this is one of those movies, if you haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil it because there's so much, well, you know, he said this and she said that. And now we're going to do this and you're going to do that. So it's very, very, very hip. It's very edgy. It's very quirky. Ewan McGregor, who's like 22 in this movie, is so baby-faced. Um, it's kind of a slow build-up, a slow burn, kind of a thriller kind of a movie. And it's kind of interesting to see how the final outcome plays. Again, no spoilers. There's one scene that creeps me out, though. They have to dismember the body when they're burying it. And the sound Ew. the sound of the bone saw 
still gives me creeps to this day. Oh my god, it's so terrifying. By the way, did you have a line for Interview with the Vampire? No. You forgot <laughs> to get a line. Oh my god, goodness. We're doing are we still doing favorite lines? You know, I'm going to trickle them sporadically throughout. Oh, well, there's a funny line in Shallow Grave. Um, the girl, Juliet, says she can't do it. She can't cut up the body. And Ewan McGregor says, but Juliet, you're a doctor. You kill people every day. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's terrible, but only Ewan McGregor can deliver it with that kind of sass. And, and you can see why these people later went out to become such terrific actors in more nerdy franchises like Star Wars and Doctor Who. My sister's doing something weird over here. I don't know what. <laughs> doing the energy dance. <laughs> oh, the energy dance. I'm sure. Okay. So, yeah, that's my number 10, Shallow Grave uh, by Daniel Boyle. He later went on to do some other movies. We're probably a little bit better, if I'm being honest, but Shallow Grave was a good, a good, solid first effort for a very talented director. Well, that sounds cheerful. <laughs> How come people, like, don't leave suitcases full of money around me? Because you don't live with scumbags. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, that's fair. Um, all right, and we're sticking with the super upbeat movies with my number nine. Oh, Just geez. kidding. <laughs> this is also a very uh, dark uh, film, um, and and I mean that quite literally too. It's filmed really darkly. Um, it is directed by Alex Proyas, screenplay by David J. Shaw and John Shirley from the comic book by James O'Barr. It's actually, I think, a comic strip. And, um, I thought it was a graphic novel, actually. It's a comic. <laughs> uh, starring Brandon Lee in what tragically would turn out to be his final screen role. Um, Michael Wincott, who was like the go-to creep um, of the early 90s, and he's so good at it. Uh, Rochelle Davis, Ernie Hudson, and Bai Ling. I am talking about The Crow. Oh, where to start with The Crow? Um, after being brutally murdered, a musician returns to, uh, air quote, life um, with the help of a crow to avenge himself and his fiance. Um, in the movie, it, it kind of tells a story about how um, souls can be ushered back um, from the world of the dead to the world of the living with the help of the crow. So he becomes kind of this undead avenger. He can't be hurt. He can't be he can't be killed, and his job is to rectify the wrongs that were done to him in his life. It is, for as darkly atmospheric as it is, I mean, they did a really beautiful job putting together this um, kind of metropolis, and uh, I mean, it's all city filmed, but it seems to always be night. <laughs> always. <laughs> took a cue from Blade Runner on that one. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, it, it's kind of cool, because, you know, the set that is his um, penthouse apartment that he lived in with his fiance, which was full of love. Like it's a, it's a much, it's a much warmer set than the cold outside or, you know, the areas where the, where the bad guys, the vicious gang, you know, exist and roam. And so even though it is a kind of a darkly filmed movie, they still did a really nice job bringing in some um, warm elements to it. Um, I think the reason I like this movie is that it, it could very easily have trickled into the territory of a movie about vengeance, which wouldn't necessarily be bad because I mean, come on, I love the Count of Monte Cristo, right? right. But what the crow is really is a movie about love. Um, they, he's angry. Yes. And he, I mean, he pays back with equal pain to these people, the things that were done to him, but it's interspersed with just beautiful scenes of him with his fiance. And then, he spent some of his time there helping a young friend who was a friend of the both of them to have a better relationship with her mom and be cared for. 
Um, so even though he's there on a, on a vengeance mission, it's a mission driven by the love that he has and not by anger or by hate. It's really kind of a, kind of a beautiful theme. Um, you know, his heart, his heart is just always broken. Um, again, Brandon Lee was tragically killed on the set of this film. So it was the last we got to see from him, which is a shame because I have a feeling he would have done um, a lot more good stuff. He really is an avenging angel in that film. And it's so sad because so similar to the way his dad died too. And Bruce Lee was a phenomenon too. Oof. Uh, so speaking of the blistering debut year for Kirsten Dunst, she's in my number nine film, along with Winona Ryder, Claire Danes, Trini Alvarado, Samantha Mathis, Susan Sarandon, Gabriel Byrne, Eric Stoltz, and Christian Bale. So a pretty, you know, that's poor stacked, cast that's is what you're saying. That's a stacked cast right there. <laughs> Uh, this is written by Robin Swicord, adapted from the novel by Louisa May Alcott, directed by Gillian Armstrong. Sadly, this is the only female directed movie on my list this year. I had three last time. Uh, I'm talking about Little Women. This is probably, uh, I've never actually read the book, but from what I understand, this is the most faithful adaptation of the book of all time. I love the uh, strong familial bonds between the uh, sisters. I really believe these actresses could be sisters. They were so close and so caring for one another throughout the whole story of course most people are familiar with the story of the march sisters as they endure the trials and tribulations of the civil war uh this is just a beautiful film it's a beautiful beautiful uh what's the word i'm looking for family drama family epic but not really an epic just Small epic, if that makes sense. <laughs> like a mini epic. Like it's a mini epic, like small stakes, but yet you feel the weight of what's going on uh, with the sisters, especially since their father is off fighting in the war. Um, they endure sickness, of course, for poor Beth, uh, who has my favorite line in the movie, her, her last words before she sadly passes away, where she says, why does everyone want to go away? I love being home, but I don't like being left behind. Now I am the one going ahead. I'm not afraid. I can be brave like you. So sad, and Claire Danes just knocked that out of the park. This is a beautiful, beautiful adaptation of a timeless story. Wonderful score by Thomas Newman, who himself was having a double whammy year. He was double Oscar nominee for scores this year for Little Women and The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, this is it's perhaps a little bit overly romanticized in some places, but Christian Bale looks like he's about 10. <laughs> you know what, though? He did a really good job as Laurie. I'm he, did. Be honest. he did, but uh, I'm looking at him going... You're going to be Batman someday, dude. <laughs> you look like you're 10, but I'm just kidding. We love Christian Bale. He's a fantastic actor. And Eric Stoltz, I like him. He doesn't really do too much in the movie, but he's quite good. And uh, Susan Sarandon, fantastic as the mother. She's a terrific marmy. Um, honestly, this is one of my favorite uh, literary adaptations of the 90s. So Little Women is my number nine. You know, I really like that adaptation, too. And um, I no disrespect to the more recent version, but one of the things I think they did well in the 94 is they cast two different actresses um, as Amy. So Kirsten Dunst as young Amy, and then Amy grows up from being a child to being a woman. Um, so they switch to Samantha Mathis later in the story because it you know would have been around creepy. the 50 minute mark it would have been a little <laughs> creepy if it was a 12 year old amy with uh, with laurie but they they used the same actress in the later version and um it doesn't read right to me um was that florence Pugh? it was florence Pugh, and she does a great job she really does but she she just looks too grown up to be young amy so i think that um they did they, they made a very smart decision in 94 in choosing two separate actresses yeah and i think uh 
Dunst and Mathis played Amy with so much similarity that it seemed seamless the way they just changed one into the other. Like I didn't feel jarred at all. So yeah, no, it's a good pick. It's my favorite uh, version. Yeah. Okay, number eight. So folks, at the beginning, I said that my brother had far more nuanced movie taste <laughs> than I do. <laughs> and if you go back and listen to episode one, and if you haven't listened to episode one, why have you not listened to episode one? I'm just going to leave that on the table. But if wow. you listen to episode one, I actually called myself hashtag basic. Okay. My number eight film is a reflection of that. It's also a reflection of the fact that I've, we've, I've said since the beginning, these are our favorite movies of the year in question. They're not necessarily the Academy Award winners. They're not necessarily, you know, Critics' Choice, BAFTA, SAG nominees. These are movies that I could watch repeatedly over and over again or that have touched my life or in some way or made me think or whatever. My number eight <laughs> is, I'm going to be honest, it, it's a purely amazing action film. I'm going to call it amazing. It is as, amazing. As action films go, because you've all seen it and you've probably all seen it 50 times and you're entertained every time you watch it. Don't lie. You know you are. It was directed by Jan de Bont, written by Graham Yost, starring... The Keanu Reeves, who is just a cracking human being, let's be honest. Um, Dennis Hopper, my girl, Sandra Bullock, uh, in the movie that launched her career. Sandy, I think Speed 2 Cruise Control might have been a mistake, but we can talk about that later. Um, Jeff Daniels, Joe Morton, and I had to add Alan Ruck to the cast list because, let's be honest, he's Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Of course, I'm talking about Speed, okay? And if you don't think Speed is one of the best movies of the year, you're just wrong. <laughs> it is about a brash young LAPD officer. Uh, and he, he foils the bombing attempt of a building and then he makes the bomber personally mad at him. So the bomber puts a bomb on a bus and then he has to keep the bus from exploding by keeping it above 50 miles per hour in Los Angeles. And let me tell you, I'm a native Southern Californian. And you can't always drive 50 in Los Angeles, much as you'd like to. <laughs> you can't always drive 10 miles an hour in Los right? Angeles. <laughs> so, first of all, just keeping the bus moving is no is no small feat, right? Plus, you got to contend with the fact that you have a crazy bomber holding people hostage. And he's, you know, crafted all kinds of booby traps and weirdness. Um, look, it's just a fantastic action movie. And it's especially when you consider that they've amped up all of this tension inside of a bus right so like the the space you have to work with is pretty small but it keeps you in, intrigued the entire time um keanu reed look he's earnest and he is handsome and um he's yeah, funny he's very just, funny he is very funny there's some really good comedy chops in that movie i mean if you're looking for reality this is not this is not the film for you but if you want just a really like edgier seat super fun engaging action flick with characters that you can get into um sandra bullock playing spunky little annie there behind the wheel of the bus is great um it's just a gripping fun action film and you know what i've watched this movie a hundred times and i enjoy it every single time i watch it oh it's a gas um, i mean i'm not gonna say, <laughs> i'm not gonna say you know that it's the greatest active movie i've ever seen it's not but that's not what it's there for it's there for entertainment it's there for fun 
Um, I absolutely love it. My line from this movie, <laughs> take the phone. <laughs> I mean, there's so many that you could just throw out because it's actually really. Well, I guess they feel behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of really great movies or great movie lines for speed. It's infinitely quotable. Um, it's Keanu Reeves as, as a young Keanu Reeves. Um, and honestly, I think it's one of, I think it's one of his best roles. <laughs> It's a lot of fun. And you forgot to mention Dennis Hopper hamming it up. Oh, yeah. He, he's creepy. Oh, when uh, I love when Jeff Daniels figures out who it is. That is him. <laughs> That's our scumbag. <laughs> it's just fun. I love Dan Dennis Hopper. You're right. Hey, pop quiz, hot shot. Uh, I mean, it's just a fun movie. And I like speed. I'm not ashamed. So pop quiz, hot shot. What's my number eight? Because it is one of those nuanced, arty farty foreign films. So that's the segue. <laughs> Uh, last year, 93, my number two was uh, Three Colors Blue. So it's no surprise that we're going back to the Kislovsky well for this year. Uh, my number eight is Three Colors White. Uh, again, as I mentioned, directed by Krzysztof Kislovsky, direct, uh, written by Krzysztof Piesiewicz, starring Zbigniew Zamakowski and Julie Delpy. I'm going to interrupt you for just a minute. And say that I'm going to give you all kinds of credit for being able to pronounce these names properly. And I'm sure that you are killing it. I've seen lots of documentaries. Uh, this is the middle installment of the Three Colors trilogy. And each film in the trilogy deals with one of the themes of the French flag, as I mentioned. Equality is the theme of the uh, white stripe. So that is what white deals with. It is about a kind of a schlubby, hapless Polish uh, man who is getting divorced from his wife, played by Julie Delpy. She takes him for literally every dime he's got. He's homeless. She frames him for arson. He has to flee France and return to Poland with the help of a, a, com a compassionate Polish businessman. And then they form kind of a get-even-with-her kind of a plot. Well, she sounds nice. <laughs> yeah, Julie Delpy is... <laughs> she's not the nicest character in this story. Um, this is probably, of all the Three Colors movies, this one's probably the one with the most intricate plot. It kind of jumps back and forth between uh, this kind of cat and mouse between him and her as they go through their various narratives. Uh, Zambikowski, the lead Polish actor in the movie, he's just, he's got a great face for comedy. You feel nothing but sympathy for the guy, but you never, never um, feel like he's out of control either. Like he's, he, you know he's going to pick himself up by his bootstraps and get even with her. Um, uh, the score is wonderful again. It's got a kind of a tango theme to it. And I just like the ending of it. It's, I'm not going to reveal the ending because it's kind of fun. Now, I will say this. Me and my ex-wife do have kind of a friendly ongoing debate over which movie is the best in the trilogy. White is her favorite. And it's not hard to see why. It's very funny. It's very droll. There's lots of really great moments in it. I personally like another one. But, you know... The fact all three installments of the Three Colors trilogy are brilliant. So to me, it's like a three-way tie, really. I ranked White a little lower just because I do feel like it probably could have had a little bit more of Julie Delpy, if I'm being honest. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen her a bit get a little bit more of her comeuppance that she gets. She does get her comeuppance, but I would like to have seen a little bit more. So <laughs> White is my number eight. Three Colors White, it's fantastic. Alrighty. And speaking of segues, uh, droll. You mentioned droll. <laughs> droll leads me into my number seven. Oh boy. Uh, it's a, 
It's such a great movie. Uh, it's directed by Ted Demi, uh, written by Marie Weiss and Richard. I'm so sorry, Richard. I'm going to ruin your name. I'm not nearly as good as my brother with the names. Richard La Gravenies. But hey, I got them all right so far today, at least. I didn't call anybody the wrong name like last time. So I feel like I'm on a roll. No Richard um, Harris. Either. Yeah, right. <laughs> so this movie stars uh, Dennis Leary, Kevin Spacey doing comedy, uh, Judy Davis, Glynis Johns, Christine Baranski in a delightfully obnoxious role. And uh, one of the first things I think I've ever seen J.K. Simmons in. And it is the ref. Um, it's about a cat burglar uh, on the run who abducts a married couple on their way home from couples therapy. And he holds up in their house with them and their entire dysfunctional family en route for Christmas dinner. So it takes place during the holidays. Is it a Christmas movie? <laughs> Probably not. I mean, you could watch it at Christmas because that's when it takes place. But what it really is is freaking hilarious. It's Christmas adjacent. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny, and it's the kind of comedy that I really like. It's well written comedy. It's well acted comedy. It's a comedy of errors, especially the cops in the in the in Old Baybrook, um, the town where they live in like upscale snooty, faluty Connecticut. Um, it's situationally funny. The just the interplay between the actors is. I mean, they are on point. They're razor sharp the whole movie. Um, B.D. Wong at the beginning as their completely ineffectual <laughs> marriage counselor is freaking hilarious. Um, and boy, do they need marriage counseling. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it is delightfully acerbic. Um, if you've never seen this movie, but you like, um, you know, heavy, heavy sarcasm <laughs> and um, just witty banter, um, I highly recommend it. It's very funny. It's one of my favorite movies to watch around the holidays um, or really any time. Uh, Dennis Leary is, you know, I'm sure it was a vehicle for him oh, definitely. Um, when it was made. But in, in reality, I think his his character is one of the the lesser ones in the, in the whole movie. I think the, the Chasseur family sort of shines. Um, if I had to pick a favorite line from this movie, and there are so many, um, he's pretending to be their doctor. Uh, their excuse me, their therapist at, at dinner with the family, and uh, obviously he's a burglar and not a doctor, so he's spouting off some weirdness. And then Christine Baranski starts to get up, and he tells her to sit down. And she says, "I'm not your patient." And Dennis Leary says, "You're going to be somebody's patient if you don't get your butt back in that chair." <laughs> and it's pretty funny. Um, you'd have to watch it just because she's so obnoxious in the movie that it's high time somebody told her off. Um, Glennis Johns is. <laughs> I do like the uh, pathetic oh waste of life. <laughs> and then there's <laughs> your husband ain't dead, lady. He's, He's hiding. hiding. <laughs> because Glennis Johns is, you know, she's this sweet, cute old lady, right? She was the mom and Mary. She's in, Mrs. Uh, Banks. She's, she's just the mom and Mary Poppins. <laughs> and she is this like, wretchedly mean old matriarch of this family. Yeah. Um, completely against what you would expect, but she's so good at it. And it's just, it's just a really, really funny movie. I can't recommend um, the ref enough if you really like well-written comedy. Fantastic. And speaking of well-written comedy, my next movie is about a guy who couldn't write comedy to save his life. It's like we planned these segues today. <laughs> I know. Uh, my number seven is written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski from the book Nightmare of Ecstasy by Rudolph Gray. It was directed by Tim Burton, starring Johnny Depp, Martin Landau, Patricia Arquette, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker, Vincent D'Onofrio playing Orson Welles, and Bill Murray. 
Tim Burton cast Johnny Depp? No. <laughs> so surprised. Yeah, I'm talking about Ed Wood. Um, oh my gosh, I love Ed Wood. Uh, I love the classy black and white photography of it. It tells the story of an ambitious but cross-dressing uh, film director named Ed Wood who does not let something trivial like, I don't know, abysmal lack of talent get in his way of creating his film dreams. Ed Wood, for those of you who don't know, is often considered to be, quote, the best worst movie director of all time, being that his movies are very campy and very silly and full of errors and continuity issues and horrible performances, but he just kept cracking. He kept cracking them out. Plan 9 from Outer Space is just a delightful mess. Um, <laughs> Would it make your top 10? Though? Probably not. It depends on the list. If it was a themed list, it might. Uh, like I said, shot in black and white, Martin Landau plays a drug-addled Bela Lugosi in the final years of his life, searching for a comeback. He stumbles upon Ed Wood, who puts him in his movie, usually playing creepy scientist, mad scientist types. And uh, half the time he can't even remember his lines or his rustling with a fake octopus <laughs> in a swamp that they stole <laughs> from another movie to get made. This is just a funny, delightful movie about a man chasing his dreams who just will not realize that he should be in another line of work because <laughs> film directing is not his, his uh, forte. Uh, he does have a scene where he dejected. He bumps into a bar and runs into Orson Welles. And this was actually made up for the movie. He, Ed Wood never actually met Orson Welles, but it was a fun little scene with Vincent D'Onofrio playing Welles, as I mentioned. And he has the best line. Orson tells Ed, visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? Oh. Yeah. So, I like that, though. <laughs> yeah. So actually, the funny thing is, is um, D'Onofrio was actually dubbed by Maurice LaMarche, who was also doing his own version of Orson Welles on Pinky and the Brain at the same time. <laughs> Other note of trivia, Ed Wood is the first um, Tim Burton film not to be scored by Danny Elfman. Mm. I know Howard Shore did the honors here. I'm not sure why. I think it was a scheduling thing. But uh, yeah, it's, Ed Wood is absolutely hysterical. Seeing Johnny Depp wearing women's clothes is always funny. I think that was a precursor of future career choices. You can see a lot of Jack Sparrow in uh, Ed Wood. So that is my number seven. It's funny. It's quirky. It's Everything you could ever want in a Tim Burton movie with Johnny Depp, but not Danny Elfman. So that's my number seven, Ed Wood. It's a good thing we like Howard Shore. Actually, it's kind of funny, too, because his score sounds very Elfman-esque. Kind of Look at that. Yeah. I, wonder, I wonder if that's the, the Burton effect. Might be. <laughs> All right, number my number six. Um, this is another, this is going to be my second Chris's favorite and not necessarily, you know, Academy Award fodder pick of the day. 1994 seems to be filled with those. Um, it, you know, this is a Gen X podcast. Keep that in mind, folks, because this movie was directed by Ben Stiller, written by Helen Childress, starring Winona Ryder, Ethan Hawke, Janine Garofalo, Steve Zahn, and Ben Stiller. It is the Gen X classic reality bite. Um, it's about documentary filmmaker Lilena Pierce and her friends as they cope with life after college. And I mean, let's be honest, it is filled with Gen X angst, especially in the form of philosopher musician Troy Dyer, my eternal Gen X crush. Love you, Ethan Hawke. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it's got a lot of the themes that like people coming out of college want, right? You're, you're trying to be your authentic self, which we can really see through Sammy. 
Um, it's about your friendship and your ride or dies, right? So these are all Molina's ride or dies. Um, she meets uh, a air quote yuppie in the form of Michael Greitz, who works for an MTV esque um, TV station. He gets a hold of her documentary work, which is pure and raw and honest. Um, the way it is and they turn it into something like commercialized and terrible and so she kind of has to confront um what she truly wants does she want to sell off her work um but strip it of its soul or does she want to fight for the things she believes in fight for the people she loves fight for the people she cares about so it's kind of a journey movie it's a coming of age movie um after college and um it's uh i love re i love reality bias <laughs> i know not everybody does I do. I, it's funny. I typically Great soundtrack. I, I do. It does have a really good soundtrack. I do a lot of research um, prior, and I was reading some IMDb reviews about this movie, and a lot of people really didn't like it. But I noticed the people who didn't like it were writing their reviews in like 2010, 2015. I'm like, had you graduated college in 1994? <laughs> you might have felt different about it because let's be honest, that's when I was in college, and uh, a lot of the themes in it, a lot of the um, the way that they relate to each other. Um, the things that they're passionate about, like I, I really feel that in my soul. Um, my little cold, dark Gen X heart feels it a hundred percent. And uh, it's it is a seminal movie for me. Also has my eternal Gen X crush in the form of Winona Ryder. <laughs> you know what? And she is just beautiful in this movie. Oh, she's gorgeous. Uh, all right, so we're on to my oh, number. Real quick though. Um, Excuse me. Sorry. <laughs> Want to say one more thing about um, about Reality Bites? She is beautiful, Winona. But Janine Garofalo, she steals every freaking scene she's in. If you've never seen the movie, she is quirky and cute and absolutely adorable. And I want to be friends with Vicky Minor. Moving on. Okay. So uh, my number six, Disney apparently claimed was their first original uh, or first story not based on a fairy tale. I call shenanigans because they based it on Hamlet, whether they deny it or not. Hardly a fairy tale, though. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> Uh, it's written by Irene Mickey, Jonathan Roberts, and Linda Wolverton. Directed by Roger Allers and Bob Minkoff. God, I hope I said all those names right. With the voice talents of Matthew Broderick, James Earl Jones, Nathan Lane, uh, Jeremy Irons, Whoopi Goldberg, and so many others. I'm talking about The Lion King in the Circle. No, I'm sorry, I won't do that to you again. Hi, uh, yeah, this is basically the story of Hamlet with little fuzzy animals in the African jungle. Uh, King Mufasa is murdered by his scheming, um, Savannah, Savannah, you're right. His scheming brother, Scar, voiced with malevolence by Jeremy Irons, just dripping with sarcasm every chance he can get. Jeremy Irons, what a treasure. <laughs> Who knew that? I think Be Prepared is one of the best villain songs ever. Definitely in the top two. Uh, yeah. I mean, you've probably all seen The Lion King. You know what it's about. You've probably seen it a million times. If you haven't, you're, it's certainly one of those movies that's in the public conscious by now. Anyway, Simba comes back to avenge his father's death after seeing the ghost of his father in the sky. Remember who you are, Simba. Uh, note of trivia. This is only one of three Disney animated films with a completely animal cast. Um, I believe Robin Hood and Bambi are the others. Um, this is a fantastic film. The animation, as usual from Disney in this day and age in the 90s, was stunning. Great songs by Elton John. 
one of which won the Academy Award. Can you feel the love tonight? And again, I feel the Academy got the right movie, but the wrong song. Circle of Life or I Just Want, I, I Can't Wait to Be King should have been the other one. I disagreed with the Academy so many times in 1994. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, it's just it's just a gas. If I had to pick a favorite line from The Lion King, uh, oh, oh, I like the scene where uh, Timon, Pumbaa, and uh, Simba are all laying in, laying in the savannah and they're talking about the stars and and, uh, and uh, Pumbaa says, oh gee, I always thought they were balls of gas burning billions of miles away, <laughs> which is absolutely correct. And to, uh, Timon responds, Pumbaa, with you, everything is gas. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. I love I love um, Pumbaa. I think I sold more plush Pumbas in my time at Disney merchandise than any other plush. Pumbaa is the bomb. That's really all I got to say about the Lion King. It's interesting because it's actually my number five. So I'm just going to continue talking about it rather than reintroducing it because you already went in there. I do think it is Irene Mechie, but I could be wrong. If I mispronounce um, it, apologies all around. Yeah, same. So uh, I'm going to just expand on the voice talents. You you mentioned Whoopi, right? I did mention Whoopi. Okay, Whoopi's amazing. Ooh. <laughs> Mufasa. Ooh. Mufasa. Do it again. Do it again. again. <laughs> That's my favorite. Mufasa. Ooh. Uh, Rowan Atkinson. <laughs> Voices. Uh, is it Zazu? Zazu, yeah. Zazu. Robert Guillaume is Rafiki. Uh, Moira Kelly. Voices. Uh, Grown Nala. Nathan Lane. Um, Cheech Marin. One of the hyenas. I don't yeah. remember which one. And Ernie Sabella, I think, does Pumbaa. Yeah, so so good. All so all of the actors, I think, are phenomenal in The Lion King. I think the music is is fantastic. Actually, young Jonathan Taylor Thomas voiced young Simba as well, one of the kids from uh, Home Improvement. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. yeah, I think Timon and Pumbaa were comedy gold <laughs> in the movie. Um, on my card, I mentioned the same thing you did that um, Jeremy Irons is easily one of the great all-time Disney villains. Um, it has great themes to it about standing up against corruption and o- overcoming the fear and doubt that you have in yourself to do what's right and to kind of um, step up to the life that you want and the life that you know you're responsible for. Akuna Matata. Um, yep, <laughs> it's a it's a good movie. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, there's some beautiful. I mean, honestly, I it traumatizes me. I am traumatized by this film. Like I. I've seen The Lion King a couple times, but I really have a hard time watching it because, you know, I have a real tough time with animals getting hurt and stuff. (laughs) If there's a movie with an animal getting hurt, like you guys don't even know, like it'll scar me for weeks. Um, So I do struggle with the beginning of this movie, um, but I kind of knew it was coming, so I was able to get through it. But um, overall, solid, solid entry in the Disney canon. What do you want me to do? Dress in drag and do the hula? (laughs) (laughs) Luau! (laughs) Nathan Lane is a treasure. <laughs> uh, I have a feeling a lot of people were dressing in drag and doing the hula uh, in my number five movie because it takes place in prison. <laughs> I thought you were going to do Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. That's actually one of my honorable mentions. You know, I've never seen it. I'm ashamed <laughs> oh to say I've never seen I'm it. I'm going to talk about that later. It's amazing. Yeah. So uh, my number five, and it's a shame that this is so low on my list, but I had to uh, put it somewhere. So it came in number five. It's written and directed by Frank Darabont from the Stephen King novella, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Talking about the Shawshank Redemption, starring Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, Please Narrate My Life, Bob Gunton, uh, Clancy Brown, James Whitmore. It's about Andy Dufresne, who's sent to prison for the murder of his wife, which he probably didn't do. Actually, he didn't do. 
And uh, while he's plotting his revenge and his escape, which takes 20 years to do, he forms a lifelong friendship with fellow inmate uh, Ellis Boyd Redding. I love I love the relationship between this is one of the greatest bromances of all time with uh, Robbins and Freeman. And they are absolutely terrific in this movie as the whole time. The funny thing I love about the thing I love about this movie the most is the whole time that he's there from minute one, Robbins is planning to escape. <laughs> and the fact that he's there for so long and forms all these lot, you know, these lasting relationships, especially with Red, is just—I don't know if it's part of his plan or if he just genuinely feels that way. But I think he genuinely feels that way. And when that corrupt warden of the prison gets his comeuppance in the end, oh God, I cheer every single time. Uh, Robbins was never better. I don't think. I think this is his best performance. Uh, Morgan Freeman, who got the nomination for best lead actor. I think that's kind of debatable. Like he could have been supporting. I don't he know. narrates, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's really Tim Robbins' movie, though. So it's that's kind of on the on the wire, I guess. Um, man, I tell you, this movie's just got a lot of heart. It's considering it all takes place, well, most of it takes place in this prison, and it's about you know, you could put the body in in the prison, but you can't put the spirit. So um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but my favorite line is that red. When they listen to uh, the marriage of Figaro on the loudspeakers of the prison, and he says, "You know, for for the briefest of moments, every last man in Shawshank felt free." I do, I do love this movie. It is fantastic. It's my number five. Yeah. It. So here's the thing about 1994, folks. Um, I'm gonna break it down because we're coming up on my top four, and I have never had a harder time ranking movies in my entire life. Um, so I mean, the fact that it's number five on your list, I have it much higher, but Number 500. It doesn't surprise me because in 1994, it was hard. It was hard. And I mean, I have so, like I have some movies on my list that are favorites, right? I don't want to call them throwaways because they're favorites of mine. But if you're talking about quality of movies, my top four are interchangeable, really. It's I like mean, a four-way tie for number it's one. Ba- really. Yes, it's basically a four-way tie for number one. And on any given day, this order changes. So <laughs> even though like I have one that's number one today, it could be number three next week and another one could roll up into number one. These four movies that I have coming up are all so good that I, I, I honestly didn't know how to rank them. I had to nitpick the dumbest crap, right, <laughs> to make some semblance of a list so we could go through it. So, I mean, Shawshank is amazing. Five is five is it's five because there's so many good freaking movies. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. Um, so with that really gripping intro, my number four. And honestly, like two weeks ago, this was my number one. I'm not kidding. Two weeks ago, <laughs> this was my number one. And I just, you know, you watch a different movie and then you're like, oh, I forgot how good that was. So for today, <laughs> the first of my four-way tie for number one, my number four was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, starring John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, You Can Narrate My Life, uh, Bruce Willis, <laughs> Ving Rhames, Uma Thurman, and Harvey Keitel. My name is Winston Wolf, and I solve problems. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I'm talking about Pulp Fiction. Okay, so Pulp Fiction is a fantastic freaking movie. I mean, it is amazing it is infinitely quotable (laughs) yeah it's infinitely quotable i laughed in the theater so hard when i saw this and i i hear inglorious bastards is probably quentin's best but i haven't seen it so for me Uh. for me the tour de force is pulp fiction right now i'll watch that later don't worry it's kind of about the intertwining of lives of two hitmen on a mission to retrieve a suitcase of unknown contents for their boss 
uh, with the story of a boxer who steals from the same mob boss and then one of the hitmen takes the mob boss's wife out and that causes all kinds of drama and problems and I mean, look, this movie is much funnier than it has any right to be, given how violent it is and given how um, kind of under seedy some of the um, content is. But it's freaking funny. I think what Tarantino does really well in this movie is he takes these characters who, by all accounts, shouldn't be likable. Right. You're talking about hitmen. <laughs> and he gives them dialogue. He, they have conversations with each other. They talk about some stuff that's really completely banal right <laughs> you kind of get the Foot feel massages. <laughs> yeah you kind of get the feel that these are just regular people having a regular life going about their day job you know um all of the storylines are masterfully woven together the dialogue is sharp um i think samuel L. jackson really stood out as jules uh he's a hitman who kind of sees the hand of god <laughs> in a failed shootout and so he kind of has I think the nicest character arc, right? He starts out one way and then he like transforms into something different by the end. Um, I mean, it's number it's number four today, like I said, um, only because only because for me, a lot of times when I watch a movie, I want to feel something really powerful. And while I think Pulp Fiction is genius and I think it's really funny and I've been quoting it for 28 years actually quoting it incorrectly mind you <laughs> because for those of you who don't know it's check out the big brain on brett i thought it was brad forever i'm sorry to ruin everybody's day but there it is um at least you can own up to it now <laughs> at least i don't have to now um you know it, it's only number four today because i because there some of the like themes in the other movies just touched me a little bit more this week <laughs> but like i said that could change at any time so um, take it with a grain of salt that it's number four. I will also say the soundtrack for this, I wore it out in the 90s. Um, Dusty Springfield, Son of a Preacher Man, Urge Overkill's version of Girl, You'll Be a Woman Soon. Oh, um, surf guitar. Miserloo. Yeah. Like, so I, the, there's some great, great, great music in this movie. Um, overall, just a fantastic film. I will say, I think one of the Quentin Tarantino's biggest strengths is that man knows how to curate a soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> Kill Bill's soundtrack is also awesome. Uh, moving on to my number four. And like my sister said, really, this is like a f you know four to five way tie for number one, because these movies are all, dare I say it, cracking and rip snorting. There it is. Mic drop. Bing! Don't drop the mic. We need it. <laughs> we, we need this mic. Uh, my number four is written by Paul Atanasio. That might be the first name I butchered. Uh, it's from a book by Richard N. Goodwin called Remembering America, A Voice from the 60s. It is directed by Robert Redford, starring Ray Fiennes, Rob Morrow, John Turturro, Hank Azaria, David Pamer, Mir Servino, Paul Schofield. He's amazing. And Christopher McDonald. I'm talking about Quiz Show. Quiz Show, I think, kind of flew under the radar for a lot of people because it was nominated for Best Picture against Shawshank Pulp and Forrest Gump. It was kind of like the, the quiet little brother of those four. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, it's a wonderful drama about a uh, popular 1950s TV quiz show, excuse me, uh, called 21. And uh, John Turturro is on the show. He's kind of a nebbishy, kind of a obnoxious contestant who gets usurped by Ray Fiennes as more uh, you know, boy next door kind of erudite, erudite. Thank you, uh, <laughs> Charles Van Doren, and he, he feels cheated. He feels like he got railroaded, and perhaps rightly so. So he he goes on a 
mission of justice and it, he accuses the show of being rigged, which of course it is, but he never really gets the reason why. You know, he, for him, it's a personal thing, but when the investigation starts with the lawyer, Richard Goodwin, played by Rob Morrow, it becomes not necessarily about him. It becomes about a bigger issue, and he can't seem to move past his own chip on his shoulder, basically. And Charles Van Dorn goes down, too, and it's just a great morality story about entertainment, and it's also kind of about the death of naivete in a way. It's like this is probably one of the first times in television history where it was put on trial, really, and called a you know a tool for lying and dishonesty. So it's kind of a very uh, telling story. The start of distrust. The start of distrust. Very well. It's so well directed, so well acted by an amazing ensemble cast. Paul Schofield is a standout as the uh, father of Charles Van Dorn, who's a celebrated poet and author, and he's wonderful. Um, I actually have a couple lines. Quick cameo by Ethan Hawke, too. Quick, yeah, quick cameo. <laughs> um, there's my favorite line. It's not my favorite line because there's so many, but there's one line that I think sums it all up is when uh, Stemple is arguing with his wife about the morality of the TV shows. He's he's very angry. He says, who cares if a bunch of saps got duped or whatever? And his wife looks at him and says, I was one of those saps. Herbert. I love that line. It kind of sums up the whole the whole plot. Quiz show is a, just a well-crafted movie. I think part of the reason why it's so well-acted is because they had an actor for a director. Robert Redford knows to just put the camera on these people and let them go. You know, he knows, he knows how to work with actors because he himself is one. So and he also directs directors because Martin Scorsese and Barry Levinson are also in this movie. <laughs> Martin Scorsese is so funny. <laughs> Mercy. What a grueling line of inquiry. <laughs> so if you haven't seen Quiz Show, it's kind of an underrated gem now um, in the nineties, but it's so, so good. It's so well acted. And, the nomination for supporting actor went to uh, Paul Schofield. I think David Paymer could have had a shot too, as uh, Dan Enright. He's kind of a sleazoid. So great jazzy score too, and a great feel of the fifties. I agree, it's a good movie. Yeah. Uh, my number three. Um, oh, my number three. Okay, it was written and directed by Luc Besson, starring Jean Reno, Natalie Portman, and Gary Oldman. It is the professional. I'm being very conscious to say that this is the U.S. theatrical cut of The Professional. Um, keep in mind there were different versions of this film that went around. This one, it's about a 12-year-old named Matilda, uh, played by Natalie Portman in her first major studio film. Um, she's out to the store buying milk, and I'm going to tell you, bad things always happen when Matilda goes out to buy milk. Um, so she's out at the store when a rogue... Uh, DEA agent and excuse me, multiple rogue DEA agents kill her entire family over a drug deal. She uh, comes home from this event and very smartly goes to the door of her neighbor uh, and begs to be let in. Uh, her neighbor happens to be Leon, a professional assassin. He doesn't need a child. She desperately needs a father uh, and she convinces him to teach her the tools of his trade and a relationship is born as she relies on him for her protection and he tries to teach and protect her. Um, <laughs> it is the, the beauty of the professional is in the relationships, right? So 
the story of Matilda and Leon and how he is, it's a poignant story. He is an isolated and lonely man. Um, she teaches him how to live and to care for something other than his plant. Um, <laughs> and I was he, rooting for that plant. <laughs> know, right. And he in turn kind of gives his life around to make sure that Matilda is taken care of and that her she gets the vengeance that she needs for her family. Um, you guys know I love anything featuring Gary Oldman, right? And I mean, he is at his diabolical and he's weird. <laughs> I mean, just weird. So he's the head of the rogue DEA group. And I mean, he's such an immoral jerk. Like there's this one scene where, you know, he's, he's prepared to kill a 12 year old in the bathroom at DEA headquarters. That's how far he's sunk into um, immorality and into his corruption. Um, you know, Natalie Portman has said in later years that she felt sexualized um, doing this movie. I think it's important to remember that this is a child who grew up with basically no parental supervision. The images of her mother that are de depicted, she is over-sexualized. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say that's probably what Matilda's role models look like. Um, I think the European version was much worse, but I want to at least address it. Um, I think the U.S. audiences, it did not play well, and so they toned it down a lot, which is why I was careful to specify which version I prefer at the beginning. Either way, um, you know, for the time period, uh, I think it was... I see it in some scenes. I really do. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think uh, Jean Renault did a beautiful job. He said in um, discussing the film that he let Natalie be emotionally in charge of all of the scenes where that could have been an issue um, so that it wouldn't be cringy, you know? Yeah. Um, and so like, he just does a really good job of, you know, allowing her to be kind of a, um, a teenager on the cusp of kind of becoming a woman and, you know, dealing with her feelings and um, learning to love somebody because the only person she really loved in her family was her little brother. Um, and then she just, she loves Leon because, because he cares really. Um, and it's kind of poignant in that way, but um, I think he did a nice job with it. I think she did a really good job, especially for her youth, how young she was. It's just, um, it's a, it's a real good movie. <laughs> Gary Oldman. Of course, my favorite line has to be Gary Oldman. Bring me everyone. And I read that he ad-libbed that, um, that, uh, that scene there where he's shouting, um, <laughs> he, he like gave a verbal cue for the sound guy to take his headset off. And then he just yelled that line to surprise Luc Besson. Luc Besson left it in and he said, it's the line that most gets quoted to him by fans to this day. So there you go. It is a good movie. In fact, it's my number three. Oh, so hey, look at that. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we lined up here. Leon is my number three. And since you pretty much just told everyone what they need to know, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and kind tell of, us what you like about it. I, I liked everything you just said, really. I liked the relationship between Matilda and Leon. Um, I feel like part of the reason why she kind of crushes on him is because he is a father figure to her and she may, her emotions are probably confused perhaps maybe that's why she latches onto him in that way she's a little precocious too. yeah she is precocious and uh jean renault has said in in many interviews that he played leon as a bit slow but not stupid just kind of a little slow on the uptake a little bit 
And Gary is, as you said, he's Gary. And actually, everyone was my line, too. So you stole that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it actually kind of reminded me of the uh, French film Sundays and Sibel a little bit in that way, because the relationship between Leon and Matilda is similar to that film as well, in the fact that she has a lot of abandonment issues, just like Sibel in that film, the French film. And again, you know, the, the man in that movie is also kind of a father figure to her, too. That's a great little French film if you haven't seen it. Sundays and Sibel. Um, uh, I love his plant. <laughs> I can't. The first time I watched this, I remember thinking, go back and get your plant. Save the plant. I don't know why I was rooting for the plant, but I'm glad he got it out of the building. It was the only thing he really took care of before her. Yeah. <laughs> Not uh, even himself, right? Yeah. Uh, we should also mention, uh, this is kind of a side note here. Uh, we should give a special shout out to the actor Keith A. Glasgow. He played one of the DEA DEA agents who was uh, one of Gary Oldman's kind of henchmen. He quit acting in real life shortly after this movie and joined the firefighters in New York City. And sadly, he was killed in 9-11 when the South Tower collapsed in real wow. life. Yeah, he, uh, he went into the South Tower and unfortunately he lost his life uh, on 9-11. So thank you for your service, sir. Um, but yeah, Leon the Professional, it's... It's one of the best movies of the 90s. You know, it's a great scene in The Professional. I mean, oh. really, really just so tense. Pretty much everything that happens in the credits. <laughs> well, when she walks home from the store and she glances in her own, she can tell something's wrong in her own apartment, right? The door's open. There's a guy standing outside. She there's doesn't recognize, tape. right? There's yeah. police tape. She walks by. She sees a bloody scene in her own house. And so she very wisely keeps walking, right? Mm, yeah. Very and smart. The only place she can go is to Leon's door because it's at the end of the hall. And there's a scene where she she knocks on the door, knowing full well the guy standing outside her house is watching her. And mm. she's hoping not to be discovered as the other child who lives there. And she's pleading with Leon to let her in quietly, right? Because she doesn't want to be heard. Mm -hmm. So she's basically in tears. Let me in. Let me in. And he's just on the other side of the door, gun in hand, staring out the peephole because, you know, he heard the commotion next door and he mm. was prepared. Mm. And you, you're not sure. Right? Yeah. Like it's a very tense. There's scene. that moment it's so tense. Is he gonna let her in? Is she gonna get killed? What's gonna happen? What's happening? Um they just did a really good job with that. Yeah. Leon. Just wanted to bring that up. <laughs> if, if you gotta say it, Leon. 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 So my number two, uh, you just talked about it. Um it was directed by Robert Redford, like you said, written by Paul Atanasio, based on Remembering America from a uh, voice from the sixties by Richard Goodwin. I chose Quiz Show um, as my number two. I, did you mention it has Hank Azaria? I did. Okay. It has Hank Azaria. I'm pretty sure <laughs> oh, it has. It has a. More <laughs> uh, the bartender. Yeah. <laughs> we get an actual acting class from Paul Schofield. Um, yeah. So again, the Quiz Show, congressional lawyer investigates um, after Stemple makes it known that it's fixed. Um, so you, you kind of talked about, it. I'm just going to go into the things I liked so as not to bore the people. Um, I, you know, I rewatched this movie in anticipation of the podcast and, um, it, it was ranked much lower, right? Um, I actually flipped it with Pulp Fiction because upon rewatch, this is a really tight movie. Um, there are not a lot of flaws here. Um, the, I mean, the acting across the board is just on point. It is they recreated the 50s beautifully. There's so many moral questions that come out of this movie. Um, and, and one of them is, does every man have a price? You know, 
So it shows you varying levels of that throughout the movie. Like Herbert Stemple pretty much rolls over from the beginning for the fame. And, you know, he wants to be the big man in his neighborhood and make all the money because he doesn't want to be under the thumb of his in-laws anymore. And then you have Charles Van Doren, who, you know, even though he comes from this erudite family of scholars, you know, I think Mira Sorvino says it to Dick Goodwin. He's not going to be on the cover of Time magazine as, as Mark Van Doren's son. Um, so he's trying to find something to distinguish himself, you know, to step out of his father's shadow and be something on his own. And then, you know, there's Dick Goodwin, Dick Goodwin, who says, no, no, I wouldn't take the money. No, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't cheat. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's kind of an interesting look into the fact that does everyone have a price? So where is your level of morality? Where does it end? Right. It's a very, very smart movie. Um, it's an indictment of greed and the toll it can take on your morality. I think Stemple's a good example of that. Stemple's an example of a man who has a lot of knowledge, but not a lot of wisdom. <laughs> um, like you said, he, he makes it personal and he, he can't see the bigger picture. He can't see that what he's doing in trying to prove to the world that he knows the answer to what won Best Picture in 1955 that's all he wants to do is prove to the world that he knows that. He's on the and, waterfront, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he brings down so many people in his wake and he doesn't realize it until the very end but you can tell at the end right after the congressional hearings i don't want to give too much away when um you know dan had uh excuse me i did it i got the wrong name again hank azaria is talking and he's saying who gets hurt right and so they're showing van doren that side who gets hurt that's who gets hurt and the the media hey stemple take a picture with charlie and he says no man look at him <laughs> you know yeah. it it's it's in that moment after the destruction that he's waged that Herbert Stemple finally realizes that, you know, there are bigger things at stake here um, than his personal reputation. Um, and like you said, I mean, there is the death of innocence that, uh, that took place in the 50s. But um, I think the, it, it's a very complex movie. I think you're right. Robert Redford did a really good thing by getting the heck out of the way. I think the um, scene there with Paul Schofield and um, Ray Fiennes in the classroom where Charlie Van Doren has to come clean to his father. It's truly a master class in acting because yeah. Paul Schofield basically points out to Charlie how his actions have affected his entire family. And then he brings it back to, but you're my son and I love you in like one word. And it's freaking amazing. If you haven't seen it, you'll watch it for that scene alone because Paul Schofield is a treasure. Yeah. Yeah. All I had to do is point the camera at him. Really? Yeah. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. <laughs> Redford get did out it. of the shot. Redford did that. He's just like, you know, your lines go. Uh, so you already mentioned uh, my number two earlier. Um, yeah. It's Pulp Fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this movie dropped like an atomic bomb on in cinemas in 94. I mean, there there was Pulp Fiction and there was everything else. You know, this was the movie everyone was talking about in 94. Um, it was just a thunderbolt of of cool when it hit. And it has been a thunderbolt of cool ever since. I wish there was a real Jackrabbit Slims. There is. That's a real place. It's not. It was created. It was Okay, so it was the brainchild of Quentin Tarantino. They filmed it at a place called Famous Mills. Oh, I think they, re yeah, they redressed it or something like there that. There are other ones that are named that, but they're not the same. Ah, I, I stand corrected. Uh, stories by Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino. You already mentioned the cast. Um, uh, two mob hitmen, a washed-up boxer, a gangster's mall. They all have the most interesting and intense day of their life. 
just you know a great great soundtrack possibly the one of the greatest uh monologues ever i still to this day do not know how christopher walken did the gold watch monologue <laughs> with <laughs> keeping a straight face this gold watch uh it is wonderfully edited despite the fact that it's two and a half hours and it has three different plot lines going they all mesh within one another so well um a lot of great tracking shots in this movie there's at least a couple this, even when they go to jackrabbit slims when john travolta is walking around that's all one long continuous shot for like four minutes it's great. It's this movie is directed within an inch of its life. Um, yeah, this movie just it was like an adrenaline shot in the veins of cinema in 1994. I could go on. You already went on to it in the heart. Don't you remember? Yeah, in the heart. Yeah, I'm a little <laughs> curious about that myself. <laughs> uh, you already mentioned my favorite line. Check out the big brain on Brett. But there's so many great ones you can quote from. That um, is a tasty burger. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I think I think we should point out, by the way, since you were talking about New York firefighters, Steve Buscemi has a real small cameo. He plays Buddy Holly, the waiter. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. plays Buddy. He was a he was a firefighter, yeah. and he suited up after nine eleven as well. Yeah, uh, this movie has a lot of profanity in it, but it's usually extremely funny. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, copious uses of a word which we will not repeat on this podcast. No, I'll yeah. give you a hint. It starts with the letter N. Yeah, that's why I dropped it a couple. Yeah, uh, it's maybe a little insensitive in a couple places, but it's just so darn funny and so darn entertaining that it kind of gets a pass from me. Um, the scene in the pawn shop with Bruce Willis de uh, deliberating on what weapon he's going to use to take out the, the thugs. <laughs> he's like, ooh, a baseball bat. No, no, no. Ooh, a chainsaw. No, 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 no. Ooh, a samurai sword. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. <laughs> Uh, Pulp Fiction, it is it is every bit the masterpiece that they say it is. It's my first Quentin Tarantino, because Reservoir Dogs was an honorable mention on my 92, and it certainly will not be the last entry from Tarantino on our list. I guarantee it. Quentin, you came in like a wrecking ball, dude. Stop using the slurs, Quentin. Yeah. No one wants to hear those. <laughs> yeah. Not appropriate. All right. Uh, hey, we've gotten to my number one. Oh, dude. Uh, you already talked about it. I ranked it much higher than you did. Um, but it was so hard to put it at number I know, five. Right? I know. I'm telling you. It's painful. This year is painful. Um, I chose... My, my sister's cat is standing on my notes. Sorry. He wants He wants to be He wants yeah. to be the guest today. All right. I chose the Shawshank Redemption. Right? I'm just going to be honest. My number one is Shawshank Redemption. It was, like you said, directed by Frank Darabont, written by Frank Darabont. From the short story, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption by Stephen King. Interesting side note, Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption appears in a collection of short stories called, I want to say, Four Seasons? I think so. Yeah. And it also contains The uh, the Body, which was made into a movie earlier, uh, Stand By Me. It's a uh, fan favorite. Um, I only wrote starring Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman on my card because, in all honesty... They are the crux of the film. They are the centerpiece. Um, like you talked about, former banker sent to prison for double homicide he didn't commit. He finds hope in humanity in small acts of friendship and decency, uh, improving the lives of everyone around him. It's, um, and if you got, if you know, it is actually IMDb's highest rated movie. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, and over the Godfather. <laughs> yeah, it really look. It sticks with you. Okay. Um, it's uplifting. It is a reminder 
to hold on to the things that make us human um, and to take those things with us and constantly practice them. What I find really interesting is that Stephen King is a master of horror, um, mostly supernatural type horror. There is no supernatural horror in this movie, but it is horrifying in and of itself. Uh, it just deals with the horrors of prison. It deals with the horrors of corruption. Um, it deals with what it's like to be in a place where hope is the thing that, you know, people forget about. Um, and that, and that's horror enough. It's a very human story, I think. Um, and I think Andy brings a lot of the humanity with him. Um, it's, you know, it, again, like I said, I read a, I read a lot of reviews and stuff just because I kind of like to know what other people are talking about um, with these films. And somebody on IMDb, I'm sorry, if I forget your name said that this is a movie that lives with you. And, and, and I agree with that. It's, um, it kind of gets into your bones once you, once you see it. You never forget it. Um, my favorite line from Shawshank Redemption, one of the things I think that kind of sums up what the movie's about, <laughs> get busy living or get busy dying. <laughs> um, I like it. It's, uh, it's um, you know... It's Shawshank Redemption. It's Shawshank freaking Redemption, right? And I mean, it has it has all those themes of humanity and morality, and you know the things that I like to see in a movie, which is that it it makes you feel something, you know. All right, so uh, we're on to my number one now. Yay! I mentioned this. Yay! Yay! I mentioned this director earlier because he actually had two movies on my list this year. Uh, it's directed by Christoph Kozlowski again written by Christoph Piesiewicz. It is the final installment in the Three Colors trilogy, Three Colors Red, directed by, or I already said directed by, uh, starring Eren Jacob, the second time she worked with uh, Kozlowski after The Double Life of Veronique, Jean-Louis Tritignier, fantastic French actor. Uh, as I mentioned, all three movies deal with one of the mottos of the French flag. This one deals with fraternity. And it tells the story of a young, compassionate uh, model who uh, braced herself. She has a she accidentally hits a dog with her car, but the dog recovers. The dog becomes her friend. The dog's okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, the dog belongs to a retired judge, played by Trintinier, who spends his spare time surveilling other people's phone calls. Uh, he's kind of creepy. He's listening in on his neighbor's phone calls with high-tech surveillance equipment. She is at first repulsed by this, but then sort of comes around and starts to pity him, and then they form kind of a weird friendship. He even turns himself in to the authorities for his illegal activities, and there's a hearing about it. Um, but basically what the movie centers on is their kind of unusual friendship, because she's lonely, and he kind of is like kind of a father figure to her. And she has a, a boyfriend who's always traveling in the movie and he's always calling on the phone. You never actually see the guy, but he calls her every once in a while on the phone and berates her. He's always assuming that she's cheating on him, which, <laughs> which she isn't. Meanwhile, there's a neighbor across the street who's good relationship. <laughs> yeah. It's a terrible relationship. There's a neighbor across the street who's also starting to be a judge and he's having a uh, relationship issues of his own with his girlfriend. So what I like about this movie is, like all Kozlowski movies, it deals with chance and with fate and with encounters that you would never think would ever happen, but they do. Um, it's it's set up in a way that where, like, 
you're not even sure if the guy who's the judge, the old judge, is actually telling the truth. Like he could be kind of just nudging Valentine or Jacob's character into the right direction the whole time. Like he's kind of a kind of a genie in a bottle kind of a character. It's kind of strange. It's kind of hard to explain, but there's multiple takes on this story. But in the end, you know, it's they get together, basically, the young judge and her without spoiling too much. And the ending, let's talk about the ending for Three Colors Red for a minute. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Juliette Binoche. Stop it. <laughs> she makes a cameo. Stop it. We haven't heard Denzel, but we have Juliette. Yeah, we have Juliette. Juliette is uh, uh, Juliet and uh, Julie Delpy are the only two. No, that's not true, actually. Um, a lot of the actors from Blue and White also make a cameo in the finale of the film. I'm not going to reveal the finale of the film, but all of them are on the same boat, literally, at the end of the movie. And uh, this that is how Three Colors Red ends. It's an artsy-fartsy film. It's European. It's in French. It is absolutely brilliant. It won uh, many awards at the Cannes Film Festival that year. It is a wonderful film. But tragically, it was the last film that Kozlowski did. He passed away only two years after this movie was done of a heart attack. Um, who knows what he would have done in the intervening years since then. But yeah, all three installments of the trilogy have been in my list. Hello, Otis. My sister's cat is literally right in the microphone. I told you he wants to be the guest speaker today. Yes. Um, gorgeous score. Um, he heard you talk about the dog and he's yeah, concerned. Yeah, <laughs> it's a gorgeous score. I love that the, the color red is somewhere in almost every single scene in this movie in one way or another. Uh, in blue, blue is the color blue is evident mostly when the musical score comes in. White uses it a little bit less sparing more sparingly but red it is off the charts this movie is very red um so yeah oh yeah valentine has a line where she says i feel something important is happening around me and it scares me that is kind of a my favorite line from her in this film beautiful film and the dog makes it yay all right hey that's it we that's did my number top one tens. that's phenomenal i'm gonna go through my honorable mentions uh we are already over an hour boy we're getting long-winded in our old age um all right honorable mentions for <laughs> so i had a lot there's a lot of honorable mentions and guilty pleasures again this was a cracking year 1994 absolutely killed it um on my honorable mentions list again brad pitt and his glorious hair starring in legends of the fall only upstaged by the gorgeous gorgeous scenery of alberta canada standing in for montana if you've never seen legends of the fall I mean, the people in it are freaking terrible, but the movie is so beautiful because of where they shot it. Um, Best cinematography winner. I have Little Women on my list. Uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral with the charming Hugh Grant. Um, I have Claire in Present Danger because I love a Jack Ryan. And then I kind of alluded to it earlier. Uh, the Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. If you haven't <laughs> seen this movie, Guy Pierce looks better than I do in a dress. It's not even fair. But it actually features one of my favorite performances of the year. Terrence Stamp is phenomenal in this movie. It's uh, The movie was really ahead of its time. Um, and it, it's also visually beautiful to look at, especially the costumes are crazy. Um, but it's a lot of fun. Um, those are my honorable mentions. I got a couple honorable mentions uh, myself. One of them is the Oscar-winning Best Picture of the Year, Forrest Gump. I'm not a big Gump fan, but it is beautiful in, in a few places. So I put it as an honorable mention. Um, I love Speed. 
That's one of my honorable mentions. Speed. I also put The Crow, which was in your list. Uh, I like Mrs. Parker in The Vicious Circle. It's kind of an underrated film with uh, uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh playing Dorothy Parker. I almost said Sarah Jessica Parker. Oh, my God. See, it's catching. Yeah, it's catching. I, the, the three named ladies here. Uh, I have Heavenly Creatures, starring an early performance with uh, Kate Winslet, directed by Peter Jackson about seven years before he took up residence in Middle Earth. I also had The Glorious Hair of Brad Pitt in Legends of the Fall as an honorable mention, and Wong Kar Wai's uh, Chunking Express is a pretty good film, too. You know, there's another one I'm going to add real quick, too. It's it's a really depressing movie, <laughs> uh, but it's called um, Once We're Warriors. Speaking of New Zealand, you made me remember this movie. I never saw that one. It's about a Maori family, and um, they have a lot of problems, and a lot of bad crap happens, but then, you know, they remember that they're your people used to be warriors, and um, it's really good, but it's a hard watch. Um, guilty pleasure-wise, stuff that is just a lot of fun or stuff that I enjoy um, watching. Uh, there's a great little movie came out called Guarding Tests with Nicolas Cage and Shirley MacLaine, where she plays this cranky ex-first lady, and he's on her Secret Service detail. Um, the River Wild with Meryl Streep, David Strathairn, Kevin Bacon. Um the better, the better version of Deliverance. <laughs> it's a, uh, I mean, it, it's kind of a heart pumping action film, but I like seeing Meryl Streep playing a, a badass, which is cool. Um, Stargate made my guilty pleasure list. Um, Muriel's Wedding, uh, an early role for Tony Collette, and I'm gonna be honest, I love Tony Collette. I think she's great. Um, it's a, it, it's a fun movie about kind of finding yourself and being true to who you are. And then I really love. Speaking of Nicolas Cage, he made my guilty pleasures twice. I think he's like the most Razzy winning actor of all time, and he's on my guilty pleasure list twice. Um, it could happen to you with Nicolas Cage and Bridget Fonda. It's just a really cute movie. Um, That's a lot of yeah, where he's a cop who wins a promises a waitress he'll give her half his winnings if he wins the lottery because he has no money for a tip, and he ends up winning, and uh, you know, chaos ensues, of course. Um, but it's it's a cute little charming rom com from the early nineties. Yeah, I got a couple of uh, guilty indulgence too. One of which you just mentioned, Stargate. It's a cool science fiction action epic. And I also have Star Trek Generations as a guilty indulgence because Kirk and Picard in the same movie. I mean, come on. Oh my gosh. Oh my God. I... <laughs> All the geek like planets aligned for that. <laughs> they really did. Actually, just Shatner and Patrick Stewart showed up on set, <laughs> really. Uh, I also have Interview with the Vampire as a uh, guilty pleasure. I don't know why I should have put that in my honorable mentions, really. Uh, also clerks because it's just it's just a bunch of <laughs> it's, clerks. it's clerks it's big dopey fun so but that's really all the guilty pleasures i had for this year that was 1994 because 1994 was so good not a lot of guilty pleasures they're all just cracking movies really yeah i um i forgot i i, I did have forrest gump on my honorable mentions um i forgot to i didn't write it down <laughs> oh i also want to mention uh another guilty pleasure bullets over broadway woody allen's uh kind of gangster 20s jazzy jazz age kind of movie with a funny performance by chaz palmentary who's like a mobster who turns out to be a, a terrific playwright nice. <laughs> it's kind of funny nice all right and that wraps up 1994 um again the purpose of our podcast is to give you our favorites not necessarily the oscar winners because if it was oscar winners we all would have had forrest gump and neither of us actually put it on our list <laughs> um Give us our favorites and also to... That's not to diss on Forrest Gump. No, it's not to diss on Forrest Gump. We want to introduce you guys to some new movies and hopefully reintroduce you to some old favorites. 
Nothing against Forrest Gump. I think Tom Hanks did a phenomenal job. Gary Sinise does a phenomenal job. Um, it just uh, is a little long for me. A little, yeah. little drawn out, a little, a little slow. Yeah. yeah, just not my thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, it's, I, I know a lot of people love it. So again, not not trying to cap on Forrest Gump, but just, uh, it is just shy of, of my list. So um, that's it. We hope we have introduced you to something new and or made you want to rewatch something that you remembered that you love. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say it again. If you haven't seen the ref for the love of Pete, it's hilarious. Um, we will be back <laughs> with 1995, which promises to be another cracking good year. I already started pre-looking at my list and it's going to be another one where I'm really torn. I'll give you a hint about my, uh, my 1995 list. Can I give you a hint? Sure. Three of the movies on my list have numbers in the title. And I have a feeling one of them also stars Brad Pitt's glorious hair. Yeah, could be. <laughs> I think that might be on my list too. I'm just saying. Say goodnight to all the people. <laughs> oh my gosh, he brought out his people. Guys, he brought out his Peter Lorre. Yes. You should be impressed. Peter Lorre is making an appearance. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> all right. Guys, my brother has gone bye-bye. What have you got bye -bye. left? <laughs> what have you got left? Uh, that is the end of Gen X Cinema Geeks for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us from wherever you are in the world. We're happy to have all of you. Um, and we hope you Worldwide. all have a fantastic day. Thanks Goodbye. again for joining. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye.